Hey, this is Channing. And this is Leah. And you've reached Vessel Art as a Doorway. Welcome to episode eight. Hey guys, we want to welcome you to Vessel Art as a Doorway. If this is your first time listening into this podcast, we want to thank you so much for just taking a portion of your time today and spending it with us. We're so happy that you're here with us. Today's interview is with Benjamin Carter from Tales of a Red Clay Rambler podcast. One of the things when I first started throwing at the wheel last year is I wanted to listen to podcasts that had a ceramics viewpoint. And I came in contact with not only Benjamin Carter from Tales of a Red Clay Rambler, but also Paul Blaze uh, from the Potter's Cast. And I wanted to listen into the perspective of a potter who was a professional. And Benjamin's podcast was just so phenomenal. We have the podcast in the show's notes. You're going to see uh, links to his podcast, but you'll see how Benjamin really gets into the science of ceramics and the traditions even of ceramics. And in this interview, I think you're going to find it really interesting. Yeah, it was really lovely talking to Benjamin. One of the things that I really liked out of the discussion, I liked talking to him in general, but one of the things that stands out in my mind right now is I really enjoyed his discussion about his routine that he uses to prepare his mind for creating and getting into what some people call a flow state. That was really interesting, and it's even backed by science. So let's go ahead and get right into this interview with Benjamin Carter from Tales of a Red Clay Rambler. audience we have the pleasure of interviewing the great benjamin carter ben carter for sure ben we are so excited and happy to have you on the podcast man well thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here you know audience this is one of the reasons why i feel this podcast this episode today is so special the reason why we created vessel art as a doorway it's it's really ben's fault so if you hate listening to this podcast, just just give it to Ben, because Ben is one of the main reasons that inspired me to create this podcast. So thank you so much, Ben, for being on this planet, man. Oh, you're so welcome. When you first you know, started uh, talking to me on Instagram, I was thinking that like this is the ideal of what happens, which is that you were passionate about listening and then you were like, I can do this. I'm going to be a podcaster myself. So it's really an honor that you enjoy my show and also that you felt like, okay, I can do this too. Yes. Tales of a Red Clay Rambler, people, please like, subscribe, and binge on the thing because you are going to enjoy it. Ben gives his heart on this podcast. And, you know, I've learned so much from listening to the podcast, Ben. I don't want to gas it up, but hey, man, I am. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gas it up. I've been, I've been talking about you on Instagram, and, you know, it, it's just a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you on. In this interview, audience, you're going to learn about how Ben actually, not only he just became a podcaster and a ceramist or a potter, uh, you're going to learn some things about Ben's background. And I'm really looking forward to digging in deep to the subject, especially with Vessel Art as a Doorway. Uh, ben, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, and how you became who you are? 
Sure. I uh, grew up in, in Roanoke, Virginia, which is the southwest part of Virginia, not the colony of Roanoke. Because when I talk about Roanoke, people always think that that's the lost colony, that people disappeared. It's not that. <laughs> I'm from the mountainside of Virginia, close to Tennessee and North Carolina. And I grew up in an area that was rich in folk craft. So in my family, we have, I came from a family of quilters, um, as well as woodworkers and musicians. So people I think in the Appalachian Mountains, we're just used to making stuff. Um, so I grew up in an area that was clay rich, like geologically it's clay rich. Um, just a few hours from us is, is an area in North Carolina where they mine feldspars. Um, so there's actual ceramic materials in those mountains. So when I first came to clay in high school, essentially, um, I felt like I was doing something that was from my region and that was something that was exciting to me. Um, being from the Appalachian Mountains, most of the things people hear about those mountains are about poverty, about um, drug use, about all these kind of negative things. But there's actually a great tradition of art making that's been there for um, decades, if not hundreds of years. Um, so I feel like I, I you know, got to be a part of that tradition um, by going on and learning from high school, then going to undergraduate and graduate school in ceramics. That's awesome, Ben. Now, you outside of uh, this interview earlier, I believe it was last week, we kind of talked about your experience with going to school and you going through your graduate program. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so my under, I'll start with my undergraduate. Um, I went to school at Appalachian State University, and it was very close to a school called the Penland School, which is a, um, it's not an accredited school, but it's a, um, it's a craft center where people can go and learn everything from weaving uh, to ceramics to blacksmith, any of the type of traditional uh, crafts. And so being in that region, I kind of got turned on to the idea that the clay world specifically was really big. So I decided that I would do what are called artist residencies, where I traveled around and, and lived at different art centers and worked for a while. And I did that for a couple years, maybe three or four years after undergraduate, and then went on to the University of Florida for graduate school. And what I loved about Florida, um, I got to work with an artist named Linda Arbuckle, who was a wonderful potter and artist that uh, has since retired from teaching, but is still you know, one, of my, one of my favorite artists. And I learned from her how to look at pottery making as, a, as you know, it's interesting that this is, um, that, that the word vessel is in your, uh, the title of, the, of your podcast, because she would talk about vessels of meaning, you know, that pots could have meaning that was more than what their function was. So I feel fortunate that I had a professor that was sort of aimed in that direction. And I learned so much from her as well as my other uh, professors. So I really enjoyed that, that graduate school experience. Now, from uh, the University of Florida, you, you landed into another place altogether that was a little bit different <laughs> the Gatorland. <laughs> yeah, the, the now, now, what happened after that? Yeah, so I, I finished graduate school in, I think, May the 2nd of 2010. And that same day, I flew to Shanghai, China to take a job um, as an educational director and, and studio manager at a studio that was in Shanghai. And it blew my mind to, to say the least. You know, Florida has about 25 million people and Shanghai, the city has about 25 million people. So it was the whole population of the state I had come from in one place. And it was visually, it was just mind blowing. Like the first month I just walked the streets just 
looking at people, um, smelling the food, going into shops and buying fruit. They have, they have amazing small local markets in Shanghai. So I, I got to enjoy that. And then I stayed there for about three years and, and really got to know a lot of folks that were coming in and out of Shanghai from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, the whole Pacific area, and, and lots of Americans and Europeans that were over there as well. You know, that's so interesting, especially talking about China today, really, yeah. you know, your heart goes out to so many people in China. But years ago, we got a chance to actually go uh, to China. We, were, we went to Beijing, and I'm probably not even pronouncing this right, Yangshua, and obviously Hong Kong. <laughs> but, you know, we had such a blast. Um, mm -hmm. China, looking at, at that time, we, we didn't get an opportunity to visit any uh, clay studios. But could you just tell us about what that experience was like being in Shanghai, uh, seeing other potters actually spin? What, what, what was that feeling like, you know, and in, in you having a, an interaction there, you being involved in the clay scene at that time? Yeah, one, one of the great ironies is that I was going to a country that has a thousand, multiple thousands of years of ceramic history, and I was going to go and teach in an art center there. So the first experience I had was just being really humbled. Um, I would go to the Shanghai Museum, which I, I recommend that the listeners check out if they, if they ever get to Shanghai. It is it's in a beautiful museum with paintings, ceramics, you know, a lot of different collections. And I would go and I would see pots that I had seen in books for years, like pots that I had photographed and put on my wall in my studio. I could go in and actually see the real pot in the collection. So out of that experience, I really started to see that I was, I was an observer. And I mean that in a, a positive way, like I was an outsider, but I got to observe the pots. I got to observe the culture, the people, all of this. I got to pay attention with, I would say, my eyes wide open. So I started to think more about how did those pots in the museum get there? And I really jumped into the history of ceramics, Chinese ceramics, as well as Japan and Korea and that whole area, because essentially China was exporting ceramics into Europe and into south into Vietnam and to other uh, East Asian countries. They were a major production center. And so I really kind of jumped down the rabbit hole of that. Um, which was something I'm still really interested in. And then the other part of that was the people. I really loved working in an art center that had a, a cosmopolitan feel. You know, like in our studio, we would have people speaking French and German and Spanish and Chinese and Japanese all in the same day, like over, overlapping. Um, and that experience was really exciting for me because I got to see how different people approach the functional aspect of ceramics. So I, I won't bore you too much, but let's think about even Japanese ceramics. Um, in the, the practice of serving Japanese food, every dish, meaning every item of food, has its own dish. So the Japanese potters that were there making pots would make like 10 small things to serve a meal. And then the French people that were there would do more closer to what we do, which is to make one larger dish. So I got to learn all of these sort of practical ways of thinking about serving food, which for me as a potter, that's, you know, that's an interesting uh, aspect of the art of pottery. So when you were a child going back, how does that, how does your experience in China contrast to maybe like some of your first memories with art as a kid? Yeah. I, when we were talking before this the other day, we were, we were talking about like what early memories of making and the earliest memories I have of making were actually going outside and playing in the mud. 
and where I'm from, the dirt is, is clay. Like there's red clay in Virginia. You can go, in fact, if you ever have to put up a fence or build anything in Virginia, it's really hard because you dig down and it's literally just clay. It's very hard to get it out of the ground. But as a kid, that was, that was perfect. Cause we didn't, this was before really the computer era. So my parents would just say, you know, go outside. The only two rules were you have to come back before it got dark and you couldn't touch snakes. That was like, <laughs> that was the two rules. But besides that, we built forts, we made mud pies, which we would then just let them dry out in the sun. So I feel like in some ways, this, this way of thinking about pottery as a, a life's work actually just goes back to that interest as being a really little kid. Um, and actually, what's interesting is I saw that when I was in China, we had a lot of kids classes. And, and I love with children, you don't have to teach them to be creative, you just have to give them space materials and encouragement. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about us as humans is that we want to create, like we are inherently creative people. Um, so it's, it's, it was really kind of uh, heartening to see that in the Chinese kids and the, the other kids that I was working with there. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. You, you know, uh, it's really serendipitous, you know, if you think about it, thus the name Tales of a Red Clay Rambler. Now we're kind of getting an understanding <laughs> on where this man comes from, you know, uh, people, please buy his merch. All right, that's enough. Number thanks, one thanks. fanboy. Number one <laughs> fanboy. <laughs> so how were you drawn into the medium of uh, ceramic instead of just like other, other different mediums? You know, like some people, when they, when they think about art, some people start to transition from painting and getting into sculpting or something like that and then working with clay. How was it with you? Yeah, I was introduced to a broad spectrum of things through the public schools where I went to school. And I, I want to give a plug for the public school system in Virginia. They didn't cut the arts, you know, which I think is really important. Sometimes when we have hard financial times, which we're probably going to be going into um, with the COVID outbreak and how that affects the economy, they, they chose to keep the arts. And what that did is it gave a kid like me that was super hyper the ability to try music, to try, um, I was very physical. I did a lot of um, you know, sports, I did a lot of that. But then they also gave me classes in painting and sculpture and clay. And I think that allowed me to just jump around until I found a material that I felt comfortable with, that I felt like I could communicate with. And clay was that material. Like after basically my sophomore year of high school, I went home and told my parents, I'm going to be a potter. Like I was, I was adamant from the get go. As soon as I got on the wheel, this is what I'm going to do. And some of that is because clay gave me the physical feedback. You know, like when you're painting, you're holding a brush and then that brush is what touches the canvas. When you're working on a wheel or, or hand building or doing anything with ceramics, what you're touching is the material itself. It was so responsive. And I felt like I was having a conversation with it, which to me was exciting. That made me feel, you know, like I was, I had kind of found my artistic home. And I really, since then, since I was 15, I've been, I'm 39 now. So ever since then, I've never not had a ceramic studio. I've gone from school studio to school studio and sometimes renting studio from other artists. It kind of, it kind of, it got it, its hooks in me early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I was thinking back to when you mentioned how that particular school you went to, they did not give up on the art programs. And 
the type of effect that basically your that school had on you, you kept up with art. And thus, we're talking, we're having this discussion. So really, uh, by creating programs or environments with art, people don't really see the significance of that. And that's one of the things that we really want to dig in deep into this, into these series of episodes and, and really focus in on that. Because even today, we're going to be releasing a love letter, our response to COVID-19 uh, to the world. And in that love letter, there's actually some information in there uh, talking about the Great Depression when in past times, Franklin D. Roosevelt actually... It's called the New Deal which comprise of a lot of different things. You might be familiar with it. But a large part of that too was hiring like a team of photographers, an army of photographers, uh, fine artists, painters. Diego Rivera, he was was hired with that. Also, it just felt Pollock, a, a ton of famous artists that we know about now. But it was interesting too, even going back to what you were talking about in China, I thought it was fascinating when you mentioned the museum there and how pottery and the ceramics were really important to, enough to put in the museum, to talk about the culture. You know, it's like these objects, and that's one of the things we talk about, these objects are not just objects. They are meaningful. And like when you talk about the way you make your work too. I guess we'll talk about that a little bit more about the type of meaning that you put into your work as well, besides just their functionality. Yeah, and I hope that the listeners will will think about themselves as citizens of their communities, because as citizens, we have the ability to talk to the politicians and say, art in schools is important. You know, we have the ability to talk to our politicians and say museums are extremely important. Like, for instance, in L.A., the L.A. County Museum has an amazing ceramics collection, one of the best in the U.S. So we as citizens, I think it's our kind of um, it's our right to demand that arts are not taking out or not a lack of funding happens when we have an emergency. So I look forward to uh, hearing that love, love letter to COVID because I think, I think it'll be putting the arts forward just knowing you guys a little bit. Um, I'm sure you'll be uh, upholding the arts as a solution. Oh yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, it, it was interesting because Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt, he actually, by creating that, that program, it actually boosted the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can see the rippling effects that art has. It's not just something that should be put in the closet. You know, it really does have uh, a functionality of itself when you think about it. It actually does do something for the community. So uh, getting back a little bit, I'm not focusing in on uh, on us, but <laughs> how do you feel art, design, creativity has had an influence in your life? Yeah, earlier I mentioned that I was hyper and that um, when I was a kid, that's, a, that's an understatement. <laughs> I was a problem. <laughs> I was a problem everywhere I went. I was... Um, very active mentally. And because of that, I was very active physically. And I went from being essentially a juvenile delinquent that was, you know, causing a lot of havoc, which we don't have to go into the details of that. But um, what creativity did for me is it made me feel like I could exist in my own skin. And that's really important. And I've actually, as I've interviewed people on my own podcast, I've realized this is common, like the feeling of, of having creativity makes the artist feel embodied. You know, like we're in a time, we're in a place, we're commenting on a society that we are a part of. And I think creativity kind of has that special power to be able to process the world, or at least this is what I think about what I'm doing, um, is that I'm taking in information from a world that often seems confusing. And through my art, I'm making sense of that world. 
And it makes me feel calmer. It, it reduces anxiety in myself. It also creates objects that bring other people a lot of joy. Um, you know, one of the things we talked a, a little bit about off mic was just the idea of like, what does art do for people? And I think, it, especially in a time like this, it, it helps us to see that our own individual perspective can sometimes be really bad or negative. We can feel all these feelings of tension, but you can look at, a, at an artwork and lose yourself. So it's interesting that I feel embodied as a maker through my creativity, but as a viewer, I often feel like I'm losing myself in a positive way, whether that's in a museum, sometimes that's listening to a song, I mean, I think we've all had that experience. We're listening to music we really like, and all of a sudden we're three or four songs in and we, we don't even know how we got there. <laughs> um, I think art and creativity have that ability. Yeah, and that's something that we need. You can look at a piece of art and lose yourself. Really losing our minds right now. <laughs> you know, outside of cabin fever. So yeah, that's definitely something that that's a form of therapy that we need. <laughs> sure. And I thought it was, I think it's really interesting when you were talking about how you as the creator, and I feel that way too, making art helps me embody myself. But it's interesting too, that some of the people that acquire art or people who are collectors, they feel that way about acquiring art and curating their own space. They feel like, like, so it kind of leaves you and they feel like that piece describes themselves, especially as they surround themselves with these pieces. So I just, it's really, it's just interesting <laughs> how we as humans are and how it's more, it's, it's an innate need for us. And, and you know, working in, inside of the hospital, I work at 30 different hospitals all around the country. You know, I've actually been a patient and I've actually had surgery done. And I remember going to one of the hospitals. I, I got into an accident. I had to have immediate surgery done. And when they built me, they built me outside. And I was at Stanford. And there were these beautiful waterfalls. And, you know, in, in the back of my mind, like, you don't, you're not thinking of it. But it, these waterfalls that an artist created or an architect, it just has something. It does something to you. Like, nobody gives that architect or that artist to do credit. But for me, I was going through an agonizing time at the time. You, you know, I, I just had a major surgery done and I'm going outside and I'm looking and hearing a piece of artwork. What is up with that? <laughs> you know, so is art needed? Let's just think about that in this time of, of crisis that we're living. But, but, but going back to you, Ben, you're such an amazing person, man. We want to we want to uh, know something about you. What is your process like when uh, you you start designing? Something? Yeah, one of the things that pottery has given me is it gives me a place to start. Um, ceramics is a thousands of year old tradition. You know, you can look at different regions of the world and they have specific traditions. But if we think about sort of humankind's relationship to pottery or to vessels in general, the reason that those are important is because they're used in the consumption of food. So when I'm starting an object, I'm thinking, what is this for? That's, that's kind of the function is the place I begin. And so let's take a pitcher, because I make a lot of pitchers, iced tea pitchers, things like that. It'd be about a nine to 10 inch pitcher that could serve maybe a half a gallon of tea. So I'm thinking, what is it for? I'm thinking, who is it for? So in general, I'm making things that are decorate, they're decorated, meaning they're painted on the surface. So it's going to be for someone that relates to the aesthetic that I enjoy, which comes out of a tradition of um, looking at Chinese porcelains 
and then copying the aesthetics of Chinese porcelains through terracotta and other materials. And basically it's, I work in a genre of ceramics that's about the Silk Road. So I mentioned earlier that China was producing porcelain, trading it into the Middle East, into Europe, and eventually, you know, all these thousand years later, we know about these as the aesthetic traditions of blue and white decoration, which you guys have probably all seen porcelain ceramics that are decorated in that blue and white. There are Appalachian patterns that relate to that blue and white. It's a little bit like the telephone game, though, where the Chinese aesthetic was influencing the Middle East, and then the Middle East, specifically Turkey, is an area that I'm really interested in aesthetically. They were influencing then Italy, and then Italy was influencing England. It's like this telephone game. So the patterns that I use are part of this genre of ceramics, but I'm interested interested in them because they have all the elements of art that I'm interested in. So for interesting for for Example, when I'm decorating a picture, I'm thinking, how can I lead the viewer's eye around the pot in the same way that a sculptor thinks about three-dimensional space on a figure sculpture or on a you know, contemporary sculpture that might be more geometric or uh, non-objective? Um, so I'm thinking about all of those things, but it, it kind of starts simple and then gets more complicated and nuanced as I go. But I have to have a starting point. I'm one of those people, I'm a little intimidated when I don't know where to start. In pottery, there's always a place to start because there's a function to address through the object, whether that's a mug, a plate, a bowl. You know, all these things are things that we use. And it's generally accepted that like a mug functions in this way. So I've got parameters that I can work within, which makes it so that I never, it, it keeps me from feeling overwhelmed with the process. I think we talked a little bit off camera about the way that you enter into creating your work. And I think that the, the audience will really find it rather interesting because uh, there's a scientific material that supports the idea of meditation and self-reflection. How do you enter into starting your creative process? Yeah, this is, this is a good time to talk about how my mind is prepared through meditation. I've, I've been um, an active meditator since um, probably for 20 years or so now. And when I was in undergraduate, I started to study these pots, these Japanese pots that were made in a place called Bazin, and in, in relationship to the pots themselves. So I went to a temple in North Carolina, and I learned just a very simple breathing meditation, which, um, you know, we don't have to go into too many details about that. But the idea was that I used my breath to become aware of my thinking. So in the mornings now, I meditate for about 20 minutes or so. I do about 100 uh, breaths. So that's exhaling a hundred times. And I, I'm focusing on my breath as a way to become aware of my thinking. And one of the things that I found happens is that when I rest my mind, it's naturally creative. So sometimes I'll be sitting on my meditation cushion and I'll literally just have multiple fully formed, fully decorated pots that just pop into my mind for a split second. And it's my mind's way of solving problems when, when it's at rest. So I really believe that when I go into the pottery studio in the morning, if my mind is relaxed, the creativity that I experience is going to be more potent than if I go in the studio and I'm, I'm kind of rushing around and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm, um, you know, my day is chaotic. So I, I try to start calm and then just trust the process, you know, trust my mind is working even if I don't feel it working. From our discussion, Leah educated me on some things. She, she did a little research on some things, and I found it pretty interesting. Well, 
it's funny because I, I, I don't know if we got to talk about it when we were talking on the phone, but I come across an article a few years back and I finally found it again on Scientific America. And it talks about brain waves. And one of the things that it mentioned was how when you are doing a task that you've done often, like driving, you know, sometimes if you're listening to a lecture, you know how like you may come up with the best ideas and that the, it totally makes sense that that breathing, that repetition, that when you were talking to us a little bit about how you have your routine, it's, it makes sense that that pitch, they call it, I think it's the theta, the theta brain waves. It puts you in that mental state where your mind tends to be able to be more creative. It kind of busies the part of your mind that maybe tends to get in the way. So it totally makes sense that, and I'm sure even just that breathing itself has other benefits that, you know, maybe we don't even know about. But yeah, I just found that fascinating that it's definitely, <laughs> it, t- it totally makes sense that that would help in the design process and be a part of your routine. Yeah, it's interesting how the arts sometimes confirm science. You know, because artists will say, oh, we feel like this. And then scientists will go and say, well, you might feel like this because this is happening. Then we learn that and we go, yeah, that makes sense. And then psychologists talk about, (laughs) you know, why we're interested in it. And there's there's a a good psychologist. Well, I'm going to really butcher his last name, but I think it's Chick Mahaley. It's, um, he, he wrote about the flow state, which you guys have, have probably heard about. And it's where you're working through a repetitious action. There's actually 10 principles of it, which I'm not sure about all 10. But one of the ideas is that you're focused on a specific task. And one of the hallmarks of that is that you do lose awareness of time. And I first heard about the flow state being a basketball fan when Michael Jordan was playing, announcers would regularly say he's shooting the lights out he looks like he's in flow and I would as a kid I was like yo I can see that he's you know scoring 40 a night like how is this happening because they would interview him after the game and he would say I wasn't thinking about anything and it was interesting because that's the same as an artist like when you're working I might be imagining creative um, solutions but I'm not thinking in the same way that I'm thinking when I'm washing the dishes or talking to my wife. It's a very specific type of thought. And um, Chick Mahaley talks about this as the flow state. So if you guys want to put his name in the show notes, it's about, <laughs> it's about 10 letters long, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, so I apologize about that. Audience, we're definitely going to put that information, well as uh, mentioned that Leah brought out as well in the show's notes. Uh, Going back to uh, your podcast, you know what was interesting, audience, uh, people, I I would have thought that Ben had been doing podcasts for much longer than what he has been doing it because he does such an exceptional job. Once again, number one family. (laughs) But but, you're amazing, man. Uh, So Ben has actually been podcasting for about five years. How would you describe uh, looking back at uh, your body of work? How has looking at your accomplishments influenced uh, your future and even uh, some of your current projects? Yeah, the the podcast is an interesting thing. Uh, Essentially, I get to talk to artists about their lives and work. And I don't think about it necessarily as a accomplishment that I've done the podcast. I think about it as a I'm just honored that these people will talk to me because <laughs> a lot of times I'm literally finding my ceramic heroes or writers that I like musicians, you know, people that are creative and I'm asking them intimate questions about their life. 
So I think it's reflecting on their lives that really changes me and makes me think about you know the, my own future more so than thinking about myself. And I love that in the, in the podcast process. I, I also, when I'm interviewing someone, I am so focused on learning from them because ultimately, as a podcaster, it's like the perfect role to be a student. You know, I get to ask the teachers all the questions I've ever wanted to ask them. Um, and that's been really important for me because I've, I've realized that I can change my own personal artwork to be clearer. I mean, that's the main thing I've learned from interviewing other people is that sometimes I'm making assumptions that the viewer is going to understand the symbols that I'm using on the pots that I make. And through interviewing other artists, I've realized that my communication through the visual medium can be clearer and simpler. Because I'm one of those artists, I try to often put too many ideas in one pot. <laughs> so I have to simplify and have one idea in one pot and then trust that if the person uses that pot over and over, they're going to get that aesthetic idea through the use, through the repetition. So that's really helped me from interviewing artists that have been working for 50 years. You know, they talk about the same thing, like having confidence that if you decorate an object with conviction, with knowledge, with understanding of the references you're looking at from ceramic history or, you know, whatever your references are, that the, the viewer is going to get it. So I always need that little nudge. Like if I just put the work out there, people will understand. It. Just fabulous. Let's backtrack just a little bit. You said you were watching Michael Jordan. <laughs> now, tells of a red cape, Clay Rambler, we're going to put you on blast. What is your slide? <laughs> Who do you like? The NBA season has been canceled and officially wiped off the planet. But, but if someone comes back on, and it, let's say if they were just to have a little mini series, who would you like to see carry the, carry the trophy? Well, this is maybe not realistic for this year, but I like the 76ers. Um, their Philadelphia is about an hour from where I live now. And they've got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And I mean, they actually have a lot of, of good people. Um, their kind of cast of, of players has been changing over the years. But they're one of those teams where they haven't quite been able to put it together to get far in the playoffs and to be able to, you know, make it to the championship. But they've got the potential. And as a fan, I love watching potential. You know, in college basketball, where I'm from in Virginia is part of the AC the, – ACC tournament, like Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia Tech, all these good teams. And I love watching college basketball also because you see these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that will do things that aren't logical. Like they'll try to jump over someone, and it is so exciting. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm a big gamer, and I like playing with the 76ers. So 76ers, if any of your staff, your uh, <laughs> podcast, I think you know who to uh, sponsor. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Ben or, or myself. We will not tell you that. That's okay. right. <laughs> All right. Moving on, moving on. Now, now occasion we do like to get silly about that. So uh, what would you uh, like to tell new podcasters out there uh, to consider? Do you have any suggestions out there? We, we, because we know a lot of people are at home right now. And they're thinking about alternate forms of income, how to, how to stream income um, in, in, in these difficult times that we're living in. Do you have any suggestions? Yes. Um, I think a lot about the relationship of fear in terms of who you ask to, to be interviewed. Sometimes when I was early on, I would, I would talk myself out of asking someone for an interview because I'd be afraid either they don't want to do it, that, you know, they're, 
they're really famous. Maybe they don't want to talk to someone who's not famous. Um, but what I've found is, is that human to human, people are always interested when people ask them questions about what they're passionate about. So I think the biggest input is just don't be afraid to ask to shoot big. You know, don't be afraid to ask your heroes to sit down and have a conversation about what their life is like. Because a lot of times those heroes, you know, the, the, the stars of the art world, they're actually pretty lonely because they're used to selling art in high pressure environments and galleries where they really can't be honest or authentic about what their experience is because they're trying to sell the object. A podcast is not like that. Like in a podcast, it's two people talking or two or more people talking. It's a very human interaction. It's not about selling. It's not about promotion necessarily. It's just about connection. So for young people, you know, find five people that you're interested in talking to and reach out to them. You might have to reach out to 20 people to get five people to say yes. But once you get those five people, more people in your field will know the podcast you'll become, you'll have a bigger profile in terms of being an interview. And then those other 15 people that said no might come back and say yes later. Right. So it's all about just like getting that process started. This is, uh, <laughs> once again, I'm going to use that word serendipitous because, <laughs> you know, I, we get the chance to sit down with you and have a discussion. That's a really good suggestion. Do not fear, just reach out to them. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love that. Now, what are some things that you would say maybe to avoid? Yeah, um, I think about keeping overhead low. So one of the things I love about a podcast is that you can buy a very simple microphone setup. Um, in fact, today we're actually recording this over the internet which is very inexpensive. Like the, the technology we have today, you can create a good sounding interview with basically two fast Wi-Fi connections and passable microphones. And it's not that expensive. Like for a couple hundred bucks, if you wanted to do internet-based interviews, you can get on the phone or get on Zoom or whatever application you're using and create a good sounding interview. Um, so I would say keep it cheap. You know, don't go out and buy thousands of dollars worth of um, technical equipment that you might not use yet. Start simple in terms of your overhead and then just expand slowly. So when I first bought my microphone setup, I used what's called a Zoom H4n, which we don't have to go into the technical part of that, but it was a starter model. Then after doing probably 50 interviews, I bought the H6, which is the next better recorder and setup. And then I got better microphones. I got better cords. If I would have started at the high end, I probably would have talked myself out of it and said, oh, this is too expensive. So I think it's good to, to start small and then work your way up. Very good suggestions. You know, in this interview, I think a lot of people are going to learn quite a number of things, not just uh, things about Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you're giving us a lot to chew on, Ben, and thank you. What would you uh, like to tell our audience in closing? I think the, I've been thinking about this question as we were talking off mic um, recently. And I think the main thing is that in a time of crisis like this, you know, we're, we're in a global pandemic, it can be very easy to, to forget that humans like contact. You know, we all feel isolated. And sometimes I think if we're in home quarantine, like you guys and, and we are in the States we're in, you, you can't, they are encouraging people not to go out and travel. It doesn't mean that you can't get on the phone. It doesn't mean you can't get on a Zoom call. So I guess what I want to say is just keep reaching out. You know, I mentioned that in the podcast context in terms of, you know, calling your heroes and asking them for interviews, but 
call your grandparents. Like it, it sounds simple, but we need connection and we're being forced to physically not have it, but we have the technology to talk to other people. And I know my wife and I just got on the phone with some of our friends the other day and we were just goofing off, but we felt so much better afterwards. So I just, just want to give some people some encouragement, some hope that this will pass and we can communicate our ways through it, you know, through connecting with other artists, other um, family members, other mentors, it, it, it makes it feel less hopeless. Thank you for those suggestions. That's really, <laughs> that's really comforting and really practical. Do you have any upcoming projects that you would want to tell the audience about? Sure. Um, you can find more about my podcast, which I'm, I'm, all, I'm always releasing um, merch. And one of the ways that I support my own show is to create different t-shirts with different designs, kind of like a concert t-shirt. Um, so if people want to check that out, it's talesoveredclayrambler.com. And one of the things that I've been excited about is how the podcast can be a gateway into people creating personal protective equipment for medical professionals. So this week on my show, I'm having two artists that are 3D printing face shields and respirators, and they're even getting to making ventilators through 3D printing technology. Um, you can also find that uh, on the resources page, which is uh, on the podcast link. Um, and those artists are Jonathan Bards, Barnes and Tom Lowerman. So if people want to check that out, um, that's a project I'm looking forward to because I've been podcasting for quite a few years now. And sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm just shouting into the void. And I feel like as podcasters, we can talk to artists that are really doing interesting things right now during the COVID time. Um, and these people making this PPE at home and giving it to their local professionals. To me, that's exciting. That's artists taking, having their own agency to support their communities. So uh, you guys can check that out. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Looking yeah. forward to it. <laughs> oh, that's another thing that's going to be on the show's notes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, how can my audience find more about you? Um, the best way is, is probably through my website. It's uh, carterpottery.com. You can find out about my own personal artwork there. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, and I post pretty regularly there, um, you know, once or twice a day. And you can just find me under Carter Pottery. Basically, all the social media platforms, Carter Pottery is where you can find me. And I'm, I'm pretty accessible, so I encourage people to reach out if they're interested in talking about any of the stuff that came up during the interview. You know, it, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the podcast. And audience, this is going to be something special because I followed Ben for, for some time now. And I've been listening to him, and he has been one of the sources of inspiration for me. So thank you so much, Ben for just being here, being the person that you are, man. We, we're just ex extremely excited to really allow our audience to, to just learn more about you. Thank you so much. Oh, well, well, thank you. I'm the one that should be thanking you. It's, it's been a pleasure to actually see you guys because, you know, we've been talking through social media and it's nice to actually put a voice and a face uh, to the name. So good to see you guys and thanks for having me on the show.
That was such a pleasure to have that conversation with Benjamin Carter. I really enjoyed that. One of the things that really stood out in my mind was when Benjamin talked about the tradition of ceramics. I had never really thought about that. Coming from his background when he was living in China, seeing different people from all over the world, from France to Japan, Vietnam, have an interaction with ceramic work. And I remember one of the things that he mentioned in that conversation is the reason that vessels or ceramic work that we create are so important in their functionality is that they're used in the consumption of food. So I found that really fascinating, thinking about the things that we create with our hands, how it has an impact on us because we're actually consuming food by using those things. And I really enjoyed when he was talking about his life experience growing up in the Appalachian Mountains and being a kid that has so much energy and how he has been able to embody his experience into his work to share with others and bring others joy and for them to lose themselves in his work. You guys, we have a special treat next week. Simon Haas from the Haas Brothers, we were able to interview him. And if you're not sure who the Haas Brothers are, they're some fantastic internationally renowned artists that are noted for their sculptural works that blur the line between art and design. And you guys will really enjoy hearing from him. Yeah, Simon and his brother Nikolai have been in some of the most phenomenal things, like for instance, Vogue Italia, Solar Magazine, and the list goes on. They've even worked with Rihanna. So you guys are really gonna enjoy next week's interview. So please stay put with that. Hang out with us online. You can find us at CLSS.studio or on Instagram at Leah Smithson Art or just Glaze Channing. But this week, we really want to thank you. We know that you could be doing a countless amount of things with your time right now, but you're here with us and we appreciate that. Thank you so much for being a part of Vessel Art as a Doorway. <laughs>